Father, help us uh, to focus on your word this morning. Give us soft hearts uh, that we might hear what you have to say to us. Amen. I don't know about you, but I love a good police drama. Uh, Line of Duty, Happy Valley, uh, I love them. And I think one of the things that we love most about these kinds of shows uh, is the tension. Um, how long the writers uh, spin it out, the way that they leave us hanging right till the final moment. Uh, how will, how can things get resolved, we wonder. It makes for great uh, water cooler moment TV. Uh, we love a bit of unresolved tension. But we perhaps love it a bit less when it comes to our lives and when we come to the Bible. We reach the end of our series in Ecclesiastes this morning, and after five weeks and twelve chapters of meaninglessness, we may well be asking, how can things possibly be resolved? We've seen the teachers hunt for meaning in life under the sun, and we've seen his failure, by and large, to find anything he can grasp onto. And we wonder, how can this tension be resolved? Which will win? Seize the day, eat, drink, enjoy your work, or everything is meaningless? And that question leaves us feeling, probably, rather uncomfortable. Unresolved tension is one thing in a TV show or film, but in our lives, in the Bible, no thanks. We would rather things were tied up a bit more quickly and a lot more clearly. But I think in chapter 12, we see some resolution in the final poem of the teacher in verses 1 to 8. And then in the writer of the book, some surmising of the teacher's words and conclusion in verses 9 to 14. I think we see some resolution. But we, of course, know that we will need to go to the gospel as we will do later on uh, this morning, to find full resolution. So we've got four points this morning. The first three, a bit more rooted, and then the final one. I'm in the New Testament, looking squarely at Christ. So our first point. Remember your creator, who is the giver and the taker of life. Remember your creator, he's the giver and the taker of life. In chapter 12, verses 1 to 8. Um, remember your creator, chapter 12 begins, in the days of your youth. And so we return there to a theme that we've seen many times in the book so far, the theme of God as maker. Chapter 3, verse 11 told us that he has made everything and made it beautiful in its time. Chapter 7, verse 29, God created mankind upright. Chapter 11, verse 5, God is the maker of all things. But an interesting difference is that um, the writer uses the Hebrew word for creator for the first time here in chapter 12 verse 1. And previously he's used a, a slightly more common Hebrew word uh, that means make. Um, but here for the first time we are told in no uncertain terms that God is our creator. He's the one who gives us life. And the teacher follows this command with a poem. It's probably um, intended to mirror the poem that was in chapter 1, verses 4 to 11. Uh, that poem was about the cyclical nature of the natural world. 
Now, this one is about the universal pattern of human life coming to an end. We won't dig into the poem in detail this morning. Um, it is beautiful. It's haunting. It's worth a read. It, it describes the process of the end of human life, a bit like a body falling into, uh, failing with old age, or, or a once grand house being closed up, or a town falling into neglect, or a funeral, or a community facing end times, almost being, being decreated. And yet it's, it's sandwiched, this, this, this decreation poem, between this assertion that God is creator, in verse 1, and then implicitly again at the end in verse 7, he's the one who gave our human spirit. God is our creator. The teacher reminds us. And I wonder whether we, um, we consider and enjoy this doctrine as much as we could. Living in the rich West, many of us educated, well off. I wonder whether we perhaps listen to society's lies um, and think of ourselves as, as autonomous, if not quite our own makers, at least pretty much in charge of our own lives day to day. And sometimes perhaps the way we think about church history doesn't help us. We're familiar with the Reformation, saved through faith. We rightly focus on God as our saviour and redeemer, our justifier by faith and upon Christ's work on the cross. We're maybe not so aware of some of the, the earlier battles of church history. The first 500 years or so, are battles to establish that Jesus was fully God, fully man, that he was the second member of our Trinity, the Trinity who created us and then saved us. Jesus didn't swoop in at the 11th hour to save us. It had been planned from the very beginning, because he was there from the very beginning made us. He's our creator, as well as our saviour. As you'll know, if you've ever thrown a burnt dinner straight into the bin, or hit delete on a message it took you a long time to draft without sending it, or watched a child create a, a perfect Play-Doh man, and then flatten it, and start all over again, you'll know that that distinction between creator and creature is a big one. Prince and pauper, they're both creatures. Man and his dog, both creatures. Child and the, uh, the ant on the pavement they're about to crush, both creatures. But God, well, he is distinct from everything else in his creation. He exists in a category of one. And we, Though we are precious as human beings, we're in the other category. We're creatures. God is entirely different from us. So remember, says the writer, remember that he is your creator. And as Christians, wonderfully, we know that God is not now just our creator. He is also one of us. The one who is creator became like a creature. It was the climax of the story of the Bible so far. Ever since um, humans had to leave Eden, God had been working on this plan to be with his people once again. Think of the tabernacle, great tent in the wilderness. God come down to live with his people. Think of the temple, 
covered in gold, resplendent in glory, God living with his people in the heart of it. And then think of that baby, that miracle pregnancy, that human child, God, come down to live with his people. Creator, become like a creature. Creator, taking the flesh of a creature as his own, feeling cold, getting sweaty, feeling his heart pound, learning to walk, talk, read, write, loving his family and his friends, knowing joyful seasons and harder ones, crying, laughing, dancing, leading, living as one of us here under the sun, that he might teach us, that he might love us, that he might die for us, and yet not ceasing at any point to be the second member of the eternal trinity, our creator God. Perhaps of some among us this morning who've not yet acknowledged God as creator, not yet committed their lives to Christ and become Christians. Well, this isn't a truth that you can take or leave. God is not just one of many good options, possible ways to live. It's all or nothing with Jesus. Choose him. And for those of us who do believe, what does it look like to remember God as creator? First, it includes, but it's more than intellectual assent. It's more than understanding, bringing to mind. We're not in the territory forgotten keys here and second it's about more than just what we think of Genesis chapters 1 and 2 the age of the earth how humanity sprang to life the order of creation it is that but it's so much more it's all engracing and all encompassing to remember God is our creator is to fundamentally reorient how I think about myself about my life is to turn it inside out and see him at the center of every single thing it's a life changing a world changing perspective I see everything I have as his gift everything I do as his work everything I do or don't understand as part of his plan everything I love as his possession. What would it look like for you as the alarm goes off tomorrow to face the new day with God as creator at the forefront of your mind? What would it look like for you to admit him as creator of that thing that you don't want to let go of? What would it look like for you to realise that he is just as much God and creator over this part of your life as he is over all the other parts? Remember your creator. Our teacher says to us. Second, he says, listen to your teacher who speaks wise words. In verses 9 to 12, listen to your teacher who speaks wise words. We reach the end of the words of the teacher in chapter 12, verse 8. 
Um, and in verses 9 to 12, the writer of the book gives us his verdict on the teacher. Uh, not only was the teacher wise, he writes, but he also imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. The writer commends the words of the teacher. The writer affirms these words that barely feel like they belong in our Bibles, so unsettling and unfinished they seem. He does so in the language of the book's themes, of wisdom. The teacher was wise, verse 9, a teacher of wisdom. Searching and finding a big theme of the book, the teacher searched to find just the right words in verse 10. And the writer affirms that these words are good. They are just right upright and true, something winsome, something attractive in these words. We're reminded of the psalmist who said, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. The writer doesn't grudgingly accept them as true, he embraces them. These words are good. The writer also affirms these words are hard. They're good, but they don't always taste sweet. Verse 11, the words of the wise are like goads. They're collected sayings, like firmly embedded nails. They drive us towards a better, wiser, more joyful life, like goads digging into the horse's side, prodding it in the right direction. Like nails, they hit the mark, but they hit it firmly, often with pain. These words are hard. And the writer affirms that these words are the words we need. Verse 12. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. Making many books, there is no end. And much study wearies the body. You can always find another book, another scholar, someone who will disagree, someone who will give you a different perspective. Or you can just find more to read, more information more things to fill your head and avoid ever having to put anything into practice. These are the words you need, says the teacher as he addresses his son. Don't go hunting for more for other words. Listen to these ones. Listen to the words of your shepherd. Those of us who've been Christians a while, perhaps our minds are leaping ahead as we hear those words leaping forward to the one who said, I am the good shepherd. The one who said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So the one who said, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Do you catch the significance? Anyone who hears these words of mine, said Jesus. We have a far greater teacher than this teacher of Ecclesiastes. We don't have a teacher who had to hunt for knowledge, who saw but only dimly, who could not fully answer our questions, who couldn't quite reconcile, seize the day and meaninglessness. We have a teacher who is the word of God himself. We have a teacher who is God's word. What he speaks, God speaks. 
you can be absolutely certain of it. What he said in his human life 2,000 years ago, as recorded for us in this book, is what he still says to us today, though we may have to work hard to understand it. And it is still wise. It is still the heart of wisdom. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul writes in Colossians 2 verse 3, what he says to us in this book is good, true, and sweet. And we don't need to fear that this teacher might sometimes have lost his notes or gone off script, or that he was misquoted and mangled by those who wrote his words down. We need not fear that his words will go out of date, though they may go out of fashion, or somehow get lost in translation. His words are God's sure and certain words for us today. We have his spirit to guarantee it. His spirit who ensured that they were written down accurately then, and who ensures that they are accurately translated into our hearts today. The Spirit doesn't get things wrong. He doesn't need a sensitivity editor to check that his words are suitable for a more enlightened contemporary audience. The Spirit does his work perfectly. We have a teacher who is the Word of God himself, and whose words come to us through his Spirit. And isn't that a great reassurance? We don't rely on ourselves to access God's words to us. It is not on us to do God's work through God's word in our hearts and lives. It doesn't hang on our intellect, our attentiveness, our Bible knowledge and handling skills. It's not about how much we read, how often, which bits, for how long, and with how much human understanding. It's on him. It's on him to do his work through his word in our lives. It relies on the power of his spirit, not on the quality or the quantity of our listening. We need only open our Bibles and be ready to hear, and he will do the rest. And isn't that a great reassurance if, like me, you so often find yourself coming to your Bible being cold? reassuring too when we find these words hard and when we're tempted to give up on them, when they take us to places we'd rather not go and bring up struggles, sins and pains that we prefer to leave behind, <coughs> and when they don't promise that that person will get better, that this person will become a Christian, that that dream and hope of mine will one day be mine. It's reassuring when they're derided in the media, mocked by our friends, colleagues, family. It's reassuring when we see our sins staring right at us from these words and we feel the nail sear us deeply. It's reassuring to know that these words come to us from God, the one who says that he is gentle and lowly, the one who is our shepherd. So listen to your teacher, the writer tells us. And be warned of different words. Verse 12. Be warned of anything in addition to them. Not that there isn't wisdom to be found elsewhere in the world. There certainly is. 
But don't let the world's wisdom take the place of these words, this wisdom. Don't knowingly or unknowingly let how you use your time, how you spend your money, how you bring up your children, how you view your career, your very value systems and deepest held beliefs be more influenced by friends, colleagues, family, media than it is by Jesus. Listen to the teacher. Only he has the words of eternal life. To remember your creator, listen to your teacher. Thirdly, fear and obey your God. He will judge all things. Fear and obey your God. He will judge all things. Verses 13 and 14. The writer's given his verdict on the teacher. Now he gives his conclusion on all that the teacher has said. Verse 13. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the duty of all mankind. Such a simple conclusion. Such a complex book. Two parts. Fear. Or fear of God. For the believer in the Bible isn't quaking in your boots, terrified of punishment. Think of it more like, like reverence. Or a right and healthy sense of your smallness and God's great glory. And obedience. We've touched on it already. God's word isn't merely academic or philosophical. It is practical. It is to be lived out. Not because our access to heaven will be measured by the quality of our obedience. But because to accept the gospel is to walk in the light as he is in the light. As John writes in 1 John 1. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. So we're to fear and we're to obey. But this feels very Old Testament, perhaps, fear and obey. The Christian thinker and writer John Piper on the subject of the fear of God once wrote, and we're so quick, I think, to solve the problem of God's fearsomeness with the gospel. We may not give people a chance to really let them sink in how deeply sinful they are or how fearful God really is. I think I'll probably agree with his verdict. Of course, we want to. We must get to the gospel. We want to see the gospel's answer. We want to see that we can know God as well as fear him, that it's Christ's obedience that counts, uh, not ours. But I wonder whether we can really appreciate the goodness of that. If we've never anticipated the prospect, as the psalmist does in Psalm 130, standing before our mighty creator on our own two feet, on our own. And even though it's Christ's obedience that saves us, and we come into our fearful God's presence because of it, we're still called to obey as Christians. Faith without deeds is dead, wrote James in chapter 2 of his letter. So let's hover here for, for just a little longer. Let's not move on too quickly to the gospel answer. But instead, let's consider why the writer gives this instruction. And he tells us in verse 14, For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good 
or evil. We are to fear and obey because God is judge. We are to fear and obey because God sees everything, God knows everything, and God deals with everything. He may not feel very present in our world here and now. Justice goes unchecked, pain dominates, death wins. But he sees all, he knows all, and one day he will judge all. Nothing is going unnoticed in our lives, however it may seem. No stone will be left unturned in the end. He will deal with every single sin that has happened here under the sun. And so we're to fear him and obey him. What does it mean? Obey, we can probably understand. But fear, what does it mean to fear God? I think it brings us back to where we began. To fear God is to relate to him as creator, to treat him as God, and to see ourselves as creatures. Our, our natural human propensity, and Zacchaeus Swine, who's written a beautiful book on Ecclesiastes, writes, is to enter God's house, spouting off dreams and big promises, garnering attention and securing praise for ourselves, as if his house exists for us and for our glory. But to fear God, is to do the opposite. It's to enter his house with heads bowed low in humility, ready to accept and enjoy all the gifts this homemaker has given to us, seeing his signature in every piece of design and art, and gladly submitting to his house rules. Or to give another metaphor, to fear God is to give up trying to get our hands onto the steering wheel, and to take our seat in the back, Buckle up and let God drive us to our destination. Another helpful way to consider what it means to fear God might be to consider its opposite. The opposite of fearing God, what we'll do if we don't fear him, isn't to be fearless, to fear nothing. It's to fear something else, to let something or someone else in the driving seat of our lives and controlling the decisions we make, the things we prioritise, the goals we aim for. So to not fear God isn't to be fearless, but it's to enslave ourselves to something that's just another creature, another created thing, instead of to the God who is creator. We're to fear and obey him. But we will fail. We will fall short. Which of us hasn't already fallen into sin, even just this morning? If you don't believe me, look deeper into your heart. I'm sure you'll see as much selfishness and hatred in there as I see in mine. We will fail. Ecclesiastes 8 verse 20, quoted in Romans, says, There is no one on earth who is righteous, no one who does what is right and never sins. We will fail. And that makes this last verse of Ecclesiastes look rather scary, after all. God will, bring into, God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. If that includes me, 
That includes my hidden things, the evil things that I have said, thought, felt, and done. This includes me. Right here is where we must look forward, I think, beyond what Ecclesiastes can give us. For I think there are two things missing in Ecclesiastes. Of one, the writer of Ecclesiastes never refers to God by his covenant name, Yahweh. The name translated as Lord uh, and written in little capital letters in our English Bibles. The name God revealed to his people through Moses. The writer of Ecclesiastes never uses that name, Yahweh, the Lord. He only ever uses a more generic Hebrew word translated as God, the word Elohim. So if Ecclesiastes is a hunt for knowledge, a search to find, then there's one thing that's not really known, even by the end. God is there in the book. He's present. We're told true things about him. He's the maker, the creator, the giver of good things, the judge. But he isn't known. And if we skip a few hundred pages forward, we land in John's Gospel. And we hear that no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. In chapter 10, verse 14, Jesus says to us, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. About his Father, he says in chapter 14 of John, From now on, you know him, you've seen him. Of the Spirit, in that same chapter, he says, You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Finally, he prays in chapter 17, verse 3, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. We know God. We don't just know true things about him, we know him. We're believers today. Through his son, Jesus Christ. We are in a far better position than this teacher at the end of Ecclesiastes. And who is the God we know? Another question that Ecclesiastes can't answer. Second thing that I think is missing. We get a sense in the book that there must be something more. The teacher doesn't quite manage to find it. But in John 11 we read, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Who is the God we know? He's the resurrection and the life. He's the one who has revealed that there is more. There is something beyond death. There is a life above and beyond the sun. There is a whole new creation. And he is the one who will bring us there. He is the one who, by his very own blood, given up at the cross, has already paid for our every evil, hidden and seen. He will judge, but he will bring us through that judgment into the eternity that we were built for. The eternity that he has set in our hearts. The eternity in which we will know him and worship him and enjoy him forever. So our final point. Know your God 
who is the resurrection and the life. With this, you can live well under the sun. Enjoy life. Eat, drink, find satisfaction in your work. These are God's good gifts to you. But remember your creator. Remember that he is your judge, that he is the judge, and know him. Know him as the one who came and walked under the sun with you. The one who even now has raised you to new life with him. The one who will one day bring you to eternity, where you will worship him forever. With death, sin, meaninglessness, all banished forever. Let's pause. And I'll read some prayer. Father, we thank you for what Ecclesiastes does show us. Thank you that it teaches us that you are our creator, the giver of good things to us, and you are the judge of all things. But thank you that the gospel gives us so much more. Thank you that in Jesus we know the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Thank you that in Jesus we will be brought through judgment to eternal life where there will be no sin, no pain, no death, no meaninglessness, but just glory. As we long for that day, help us to live well under the sun, in the here and now. 